Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seely, GIA's program manager. As GIA reflects over the past year, we cannot help but look back at the work and recommendations that so many funders offered when we launched our coronavirus response programming in 2020. The conversation and insight that was shared with the GIA community ignited and energized funders to begin and continue their support for individual artists and arts organizations. But what has happened since then? We are glad to welcome back Laura Aiden Packer, Executive Director of the Howard Gilman Foundation and James Hafferman, Deputy Director for Surf Plus to the GIA podcast. They will share how things have been going since beginning our coronavirus response programming in 2020. This podcast includes two separate dialogues between the presenters and GIA, and we address how each presenter is continuing their efforts as we navigate our response to the coronavirus pandemic. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lara. Of course. We'll start off with our first question, kind of a recap um, from March 2020 until now. And so when we last spoke, the coronavirus pandemic was beginning to impact our nation deeply. Funders were urgently preparing to respond in a careful and prompt manner, and you shared with the GIA community what you were seeing and what you'd recommend. So what's been new since then? <laughs> well, I think we've built upon a lot of what we tried to do starting right away in March. So, you know, we were faced with a lot of the same problems and issues almost immediately as our own grantees. Number one among them being, how are we going to communicate with each other? Our staff, you know, we were all working from home. I mean, we sort of abruptly left the office on Wednesday, March 10th, right. you know, and, um, or, uh, you know, so we, um, we had to sort of figure out what we were uh, going to do and how we were going to communicate with one another. And when we realized that, we realized, well, of course, all of our grantees are having the exact same uh, issue. You know, how are they going to communicate? So when we decided that we were going to purchase Zoom licenses for the staff, we realized what we really needed to do was purchase Zoom licenses for all of our grantees. So that could solve one problem immediately. They would know that they would have a way to um, communicate with one another and eventually, you know, use those Zoom licenses for ways to communicate with their audiences and their patrons and their boards and all the things that we needed a Zoom license for. So, yeah. so we were really happy to do that immediately. And I think it made a huge difference. And we actually renewed everybody's Zoom licenses this year. And I oh, think, yeah, I think going forward, uh, getting a Zoom license uh, will just be, you know, you get a grant from the Gilman Foundation, you get a Zoom license. So it's just going to be a nice. part of your, um, you know, your grant dollars go, will also go towards um, us purchasing you a, a Zoom license. So, and I think that was really important. And then communicating immediately with our grantees, um, you know, to let them know that we were well aware that this was a traumatic period of time that we were all in crisis that we didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow next week next month but to let them know that we were here and that we were already planning ways to make life as easy as we could from our perspective and from their perspective to make sure that we got money out the door as quickly as possible that we assured them that their grants would all be renewed um, that we you know would 
we have very limited reporting uh, requirements now, but we sort of yeah. totally threw those out the window. We had basically no application. You know, we just had them, uh, all of our grantees basically send us like a paragraph or two about how is this immediately impacting you? And then each of our program staff or, or me, you know, we got on the phone with each of our grantees and sort of talked to them as we were rapidly trying to get all the money out the door in that first, you know, three months after, mm -hmm. um, we were all working at home. So I think that those were those were sort of some of the key things that we did that we continue to do. I mean, we try and stay in touch with our grantees as much as we can and find out from them what it is that they need. That's always yep. our question. What do you need and how can we help you achieve that? Um, so, you know, we've been just building on that throughout the year. I think those are sort of the big things, you know, and we did some things that we had never done before, like doing emergency grants to for individual artists. We did some, mm -hmm. you know, regranting um, through a lot of those emergency funds early on. And then, of course, we were part of here in New York City, the New York Community Trust put together a, a huge fund that totaled about $28 million that had mm. dozens of foundations and individuals put into this fund. And those were very rapid response uh, grants that really made a difference. So I think you saw a lot of collaborative effort as well sure. early on, and I'd like to see that continue. So yeah. I think a lot of what we did in the beginning, we're still trying to do, you know, make the grants process as easy as possible. We continue to primarily, almost exclusively give general operating support, mm -hmm. you know, the most flexible dollars that we can. So those are sort of what we did then and what we're doing now, a lot of which is, you know, the same or building on anything additional that we've heard from our grantees that they need. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I still remember on the webinar, you were urging folks to, you know, uh, limit the reporting requirements that they they give to their grantees, converting grants to general operating support. There was a lot that you were doing to respond immediately. And I, it's great to hear that you're continuing to do that and more. Right. Um, oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, good. Yeah, and, and it was also nice for you to highlight the the collaboration between the New York Community Trust and others with um, to, to, to pull into this, this fund uh, so that, you know, more grantees can can benefit and recover as best as possible because we know that a lot of um, institutions were ended up shutting down um, because of you know lack of funding even before the pandemic and not being able to sustain and so you mentioned some of what you adjusted and and how you are responding in the recovery stage. So can you share with us how you're approaching long-term investments and sustainability with your grantees? Um, like I mentioned, kind of knowing that before the pandemic, there were a lot of communities, a lot of communities specifically who were, who were not faring well. Right. Well, you know, our, our theory or our, so let's say our, the core value here at mm -hmm. the, the Gilman Foundation has to do with um, a lot of it has to do with financial stability of our grantees. That's something that we're very, very focused on. So our, you know, our belief in general operating support is part of that. We also do a lot of other kinds of grant making that not a lot of other foundations do. We do a lot of debt reduction, um, knowing that, you know, having some loans from years and years ago that are still on your books can really be a deterrent for other foundations, other funders. You know, if you have that sort of long-term debt, 
to help help our grantees eliminate that long-term debt is very important. We do a lot of cash reserve grants, cash reserve, artistic reserve, building facility reserves, those kinds of working capital that all of our grantees need. So we do a lot of that. I think I would say we've stepped that up even more um, over the last year, but that's something that we've always done. And I think that's very important. Um, we Last year, we were able to do a lot of things that we were never able to do before. And a lot of that, of course, anything that we got to do, I have to give credit to our board because our board was you know, amazingly re responsive and flexible. And anything that we pretty much asked them, um, told them that we wanted to do, <laughs> um, they were like, great. You know, go for it. That's awesome. So it was it was great. And then what we did was in late May or so, we we did a kind of very quick um, little email to our grantees and just said, "Tell us the top three things you know you're going to need money for over the course of the next three four months." You know, not cash. We know you need cash, but what right. <laughs> what other sorts of specific things do you need? And so, oh, you know, we got like a 90% response rate from our grantees, right. which was fantastic because we had, you know, hundreds of responses that we were able to compile and present to our board in June to say, these are the kinds of needs that are facing our grantees. And we were able to use that as part of the argument to get the board to increase our payout. So they increased our payout pretty significantly uh, last year. We went from a $21 million um, grants budget to a $34 million grants budget. So that was a huge increase. Yeah. In August, we sent every single one of our grantees without any application required. We sent them all another check. So we sent them exactly what they had gotten earlier in the year, you know, what their general operating support grant level was. We sent them another check for that amount of money. And then for the organizations on our roster that are, you know, BIPOC organizations, we actually doubled the grant. So if you were an organization, say like Dance Theater of Harlem, they get $150,000 a year from us. So they got $150,000 early in the spring when we did our regular grant making, and then they got $300,000 from us in August. And That's that awesome. was the greatest day. I, I said to my <laughs> uh, Kimberly Costanzo, who's our grants manager, she yeah. and I just had this amazing, that was an amazing day when she sent out $14 million worth of notifications mm. of grants um, on August 4th. It was really the greatest day to be able to say to our grantees, this money is going to be deposited into your account. You don't have to apply for it. You're not going to have to report on it. It's just additional general operating support because we know that's what you need. So, awesome. yeah, uh, and the board, you know, again, our board was fantastic. And so then we were able to, once we did that, then we were able to really hone in on the other things that our grantees told us that they needed. So this is where we addressed some of the other areas that were not that we don't necessarily traditionally fund. So they, they, you know, there was a lot of need at that time for residencies, bubble residencies for dance companies. Um, they, people really were looking for funding for artists for some of their online streaming work, commissioning 
all kinds of dollars like that, that we were able to make grants for that. Again, nobody had to apply. We did a second sort of follow-up to that survey in, in late September, early October, said, what are the three things you need money for? Mm -hmm. And we sort of looked through all those results and we contacted our grantees and we talked to them about what they needed. And then we made just a whole nother set of grants in the fall, about $5 million worth of grants for you know, streaming equipment, technology, commissioning, residencies, regranting, all kinds of other programs that our grantees told us that they needed. So That's excellent. Responsive grant making. Isn't that what we all talk about? Like yes, that's what we want to be doing. So we were really yeah. thrilled to be able to do that. And we're and we're able to continue to do that this year because our board uh, renewed our grants budget at the same amount as last year. So they realized that, Fantastic. yeah, the, it's not over, you know, it's, this year's right. just as tricky. So we were really grateful that the board renewed the grant, the grant level so that it will allow us to do a lot of what we did last year, more of the same and more of what, whatever it is that we're hearing from our grantees about what they need and want. Um, a lot of grants that we'll be making around reopening costs, things like that. That's fantastic. That's awesome. And it's, again, great to hear all of the different things that you all are doing and adjusting um, to make a better situation for artists. Um, have any of your advocacy efforts changed to kind of further this better situation that, you know, we hope to see and reimagine the present um, and think about institutions reopening? Yeah, I think, you know, we had a few things that were in the works prior mm -hmm. to March of 2020 yeah. uh, that we um, really, you know, brought more to the forefront. Um, one of them was we were, we, we fund organizations, we fund, we should start probably by just saying, maybe you'll have said this, but we fund performing arts organizations in New York City. So mm -hmm. the five boroughs in New York City, performing arts. So we have a very specific narrow focus, which allows us, I think, to be um, responsive to the needs. You know, we're not a big national funder. We don't fund all arts. We only fund music, theater, and dance, presenters, service organizations. So it, you know, we do have a certain flexibility because we are, uh, you know, as opposed to a lot of our peer colleagues who have very, you know, competing competing needs within their own institutions. We don't have that, you know, we work solely for that sector of the, right. of the arts in New York City. So, sure. you know, so, but one of the things is that we, we don't, we don't fund organizations with budgets under $250,000, which is not uncommon for a lot of foundations, but we had realized years ago that, that we had to find a way to fund organizations with budgets under $250,000 because so much great work is being done by smaller, right? Community-based, mm -hmm. out in the boroughs, organizations that just haven't reached that plateau, you know, that, that $250,000 uh, uh, budget level. So we had started researching doing re-granting programs, which we had never done before. And we realized that that was truly the way to not only reach uh, smaller budgeted arts organizations, but also individual artists, artist collectives, you know, or, you know, non 501 C3s, which we cannot uh, fund 
except we do do some through fiscal agents, but you know what I'm saying, under $200,000. Mm -hmm. So we did start some regranting programs last year uh, and end this year with two of the county arts agencies in our city, the Bronx and Brooklyn. We're looking into starting them with the other three boroughs. We did a, we provided a lot of funding to dance NYC, which is an extraordinary organization, of course. Uh, extraordinary. Um, but we also yeah. gave them money for some of their regranting programs for organizations with budgets under 250. Chamber Music America, also for small music ensembles of mm -hmm. all stripes, all genres, for um, with budgets under 250. So I think you know we 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 sped that up. You know we we realized mm -hmm. that we really needed to try and get more money out to a larger part of the performing arts ecosystem in New York City. So that yeah. was one thing. And, and we also did a lot more funding of residencies, which we hadn't done a, okay. lot, a lot of in the past, but we did fund a lot of residencies. I give a huge shout out to our colleagues at Mellon, who did mm -hmm. an amazing amount of grant making for residencies that really truly saved so many of our beloved you know, dance companies. They mm. be together in these bubble residencies and residency centers around the country really made a huge difference. So we did it on a much smaller base on a much smaller scale, but uh, we're inspired by what- That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fantastic. And so last year we closed our coronavirus series reflecting on how to shape a resilient cultural ecos ecosystem. And as we consider the partnerships and collaboratives that have been forged, which you you know, just mentioned, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, how can folks continue relationship building within sectors and across sectors for long-term impacts and to see a different, more equitable funding ecosystem? Well, you know, that's a great question. That's like, you know, that's a thesis topic, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It absolutely is. But we know you're ready to kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, write it in your mind and, and give us the answer. Thank right. you in advance. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think a lot has happened over the last 15 months that I hope we will see, see continue. You know, there's the grant makers in New York City arts grant makers in New York City were, you know, in pretty regular contact with each other through our own little, you know, unofficial grant makers, New York grant makers in the arts. And we were mm -hmm. certainly very, very active in the beginning months, March, April, May, June, where we were meeting every other week to really just put our heads together. What are you doing? What are you doing? What can we do together? Um, and I, I, I hope that that will continue. I think, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to our peers around what they were doing. And I think um, the most important thing always constantly is to just listen to what your grantees are telling you, hear what they're saying they need. I mean, my staff, is, you know, the, the program staff, the entire staff at the Gilman Foundation is, I think that that is their reason for being, you know, they, they want to be in constant communication with our grantees, finding out what it is that we can do next to help them. And I think that that's key to making anything sustainable in the future, to dealing with past inequities. You know, we need to be aware, talking, listening, hearing what people are saying and responding, you know, in the best yeah. way that we possibly can. So I certainly hope that we're able to continue to do that. I mean, I think um, the staff, you know, I'm really 
I, you know, I mean, I am incredibly thankful to my extraordinary staff. I mean, you know, like everybody last year was a year that really tested everybody to the limits, you know, and if it was testing us to the limits, you can only imagine what it was doing to our grantees who, who right, you know, I mean, you could never compare, you know, our issues, problems, you know, with what was going on in every single arts organization that we care so deeply about. So mm -hmm. we just tried to do what we could to ease their agony, ease, you know, ease their mind about, at least for us, you know, that we were going to continue to be there for them. They never had to doubt that. And I think that that is one of the most important things that funders can do. I mean, we fund our grantees every year. You know, we don't do a three years and out or, you know, any, they can, they know they can count on us. And I think that that's really important um, and something that we're, I'm very proud of and that our board allows us to do. We do multi-year funding, you know, all those kinds of things that I think more and more other funders are really also realizing these are the kinds of things we need to do. General operating support, multi-year funding. Our grantees have been clamoring for that for years. Yeah, They've never needed it more than now. They have never needed that stability, knowing a grant check is going to be coming. You know, now we do direct deposit, right? So everybody's yeah. doing <laughs> will be directly deposited into your account um, mm. every year is so important. So that's, that's sort of how I would tackle that huge question, you know, directly. Um, it's just stay, stay in touch and answer their needs, you know, and right. do your best to answer their needs. And don't ever presume that you know what they need. You, That's right. We don't know what they need. They, we have to ask them and they will right. happily tell us. So, Of course, of course. I mean, you know, it's, it's so funny to even think that someone would think otherwise, right? Like, you know what you need. I know what I need. So why, like, <laughs> why wouldn't grantees not know well, what know, they people need? People are always telling you what, what they think you need. <laughs> yeah, it's just so funny. So, well, you know what? I, I really appreciate you spending time with us here on the, the podcast and, um, and really sharing kind of all the possibilities, you know, that other funders can think about as they continue in this recovery space, but thinking about reimagining what the present will look like. So thank you again for your time. Well, thank and you, Sherilyn, and thank you for everything that GIA has been doing, you know, for the last 15 months and longer. But uh, I know that, that you and the staff at GIA, you have really, as I think we've talked about, been functioning at, you know, 150, 200% of what you normally do. And it's really showed mm -hmm. it's been very beneficial to the field. So thank you and all your colleagues for everything you've been doing. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So when we spoke in March 2020, the coronavirus pandemic was beginning to impact our nation deeply. And funders were urgently preparing to respond in a careful and prompt manner. And you shared with the GIA community what you were seeing and what you'd recommend. What is new since then? Well, um, I remember when I spoke to the GIA panel last year, and the first thing that I said was that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and while it feels like we should be at mile 26 for artists, the reality is uh, the recovery is going to be a lot, uh, a much longer road. Uh, 
Um, life has not necessarily turned back to normal. Um, and especially for the artists we serve at Surf Plus, uh, craft-based, material-based artists, very few shows are, are back up and running. And the shows that are tend to be smaller, more limited. Um, this is also complemented by the new data that we have from, from the Americans for the Arts and Artists Relief that illustrates the, the importance of continued investment in recovery. Uh, artists remain you know, the most severely affected segment of the nation's workforce, having lost a, an average of $34,000 um, in the creative-based economy. Um, and this has especially impacted uh, BIPOC artists who have had higher rates of unemployment due to the pandemic and have lost a larger percentage of their income, their creative income. And, and some alarming data that we've seen is that 37% of artists have been unable to access food or at some point um, unable to afford food. And that 58% of them um, haven't visited a medical professional due to the inability to pay. So all that combined, plus you have other emergencies and other life realities, social emergencies, uh, other hurricanes that have happened, et cetera. It's gonna take artists a while to get back on their feet. And uh, it's gonna require some support uh, and investment to, to make that help that happen. In terms of response, um, what we saw is that artists needed cash uh, at that, that immediate time of the pandemic, uh, the onset of it. and we immediately saw um, hundreds, if not maybe thousands of, of emergency relief funds cropping up. These were highly localized um, in many cases and very discipline focused. And they were created by state art agencies and or arts organizations, along with organizations that always had emergency funds like Surf Plus or Actors Fund. But you know, for the most part, these new emergency funding initiatives um, were either new or modified to be fast moving to get cash in the pockets of, of artists. And due to that high need, um, including surplus, many organizations um, had to resort to conducting lottery-based um, uh, funding mechanisms. And so that means a lot of artists uh, potentially never got any support whatsoever. And so as I, I addressed in my, my, my previous talk, um, this is also a challenging time for um, BIPOC artists. And we know that the pandemic has yeah. disproportionately affected them. Um, and yeah. that uh, that combined with the events of last year, the murder of George Floyd and the social justice movement, it's further galvanized. And thankfully we're seeing more conversations, more education, and most importantly, I think more action on the part of funders and grantees uh, of the community, yeah, to build more inclusive, equitable, and anti-racist construct, which is really important and needed. Um, so we also know that these environmental and social emergencies um, are, are continuing to happen and that they're compounding and that infrastructure and collaboration are really key and, and bringing those together. I, I talked about the importance of collaboration uh, at, at, during the last uh, talk and in terms of Funding, we, we saw a really great example of that through Artist Relief um, coming together, uh, raising tens of millions of dollars. Surf Plus joined as a field partner and an advisor and then helped to raise money for that to support craft artists. Um, and we saw a, a new community of collaboration, knowledge sharing, school sharing, guides. Um, one example is the Tremaine Foundation uh, bringing together a cohort of organizations to discuss how organizations can respond uh, That's right. Yeah. And then a collective advocacy work, which I think we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later. 
Um, but, mm-hmm. but to circle back, I think, you know, to the beginning, um, what assistance was out there and has been out there while surely helpful, you know, the ranges, I think were somewhere in the range of 500 to maybe upwards of $5,000. But when you're talking about a 14 to 18 month lost income and a ripple effects financially and, and emotionally that comes from that, combined with the fact that, that many of these artists didn't uh, obtain funding through those lotteries or didn't qualify to meet federal assistance. Um, yeah. We know that there's, there's more that needs to be done. There's, we need to continue to invest in those, those resources and tools to help people get back on their feet. That's great. Thank you. And, and so what are some of the practices that you've adjusted um, when moving from the initial response to this recovery stage? And who have you been working with? And you just mentioned collective advocacy. I'm curious about that. Yeah. So um, on the, the recovery front, I think, you know, we're still in response mode, surf plus. I, I think the, the American okay. for the Arts data still shows that. Um, we're mm-hmm. gearing up uh, to hopefully do a fourth round of COVID relief grants. Uh, our COVID relief grants are $1,000. Um, to date, we've, we've helped almost uh, 900 individual artists with nearly $900,000 of, of direct assistance. Um, but we're also looking at um, our other programs. So for instance, our Get Ready grant program in which we offer $500 uh, grants for, to improve studio safety. Um, we've shifted that or added to it to incorporate career resilience both in terms of technical needs, such as website development or marketing, but also uh, helping uh, artists with uh, costs associated with childcare or elder care to really help them get back in their artistic practice. And our funders uh, who in the past have underwritten more traditional studio safety, we're glad and, and excited to add to this and um, fund this new angle of Get Ready Grants. And we've also attracted new funders. So. You know, Center for Disaster Philanthropy, for example, is a perfect example of a sort of cross-sector uh, funder, you know, not directly involved in the arts, but who, who has been a pivotal partner, both in terms of education and resources. Um, on the advocacy front, you know, there's been a lot of initiatives, and, and I think um, we can go into more detail on that, but the, the Getting Creative uh, Workers to Work Coalition is a great example of that, and the Cultural Advocacy Group. These are these are multidiscipline uh, groups bringing together uh, their ideas and their policy actions that can get uh, support, like federal financial support, to directly in the in the pockets of of unemployed uh, artists and and gig workers. That's great. And can you you mentioned this earlier, kind of like the the importance of getting more involved in in long-term investment because you know while while we're sort of in recovery we're still sort of in response uh, mode so can you share with us how you're approaching long-term investments and sustainability with your grantees knowing that many communities as you mentioned were not faring well um, before this pandemic this particular pandemic right yeah you know our support that sort of plus offers is never going to make an artist completely whole, but it, it can serve as a stepping stone toward recovery and resiliency, especially when when paired with other support structures. So, for instance, our Get Ready Grant program, but also education offerings um, that many of our partners uh, are offering regarding resiliency. So, looking at 
how can artists expand their uh, their career practice in ways that are not um, in-person based uh, opportunities. Um, and that's, I think, been a, a theme that's coming throughout the pandemic uh, since the beginning because we had to shift online. But we're also looking at our own preparedness and readiness education resources and um, making sure that they are culturally responsive. Um, the curriculum in particular, recognizing that there's a broader definition of what an emergency is than I think we've yes. appreciated in the past. So with, mm -hmm. in our case, with our current funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, we're gonna be partnering with BIPOC-led and BIPOC-serving artist organizations to formulate programming that really addresses the needs and realities of BIPOC artists as we, we venture into this recovery mode. And then I think- That's great. Um, yeah, and I think with the power of the relationships and the partnerships looking outside the arts and, and finding ways to um, build on what we've already accomplished together, I think is an important component of it as well. Mm -hmm. So you kind of just addressed my next question <laughs> and you talked about some of your partnerships with Mellon and, and others, but I'll, I'll ask it nonetheless in case there's anything you wanted to add. Um, have your advocacy efforts changed to ensure a better situation for artists as we reimagine the present and see institutions reopening? Yes, um, I think we've seen a, a, a much stronger investment in collaboration. So Surf Plus um, has always been active in educating uh, decision makers about the needs of working artists. Um, we have now been actively working with the Americans for the Arts and the Getting Creative Workers to Work Coalition and the Cultural Advocacy Group, uh, as well as advocates for small businesses and self-employed workers to help ensure that COVID-19 uh, federal focused relief packages and related efforts really address the needs of working artists and particularly self-employed artists who most often work alone. Um, in addition to that, we've been working with uh, NCAPER, the National Coalition of Arts Preparedness and Emergency Response on a proposal to more fully integrate the arts sector in disaster readiness and response and recovery um, in conjunction with the cultural advocacy group working on a statement that will be released soon and along with commenting on discussion drafts of the PLACE Act and the CREATE Act, which will be introduced soon. Okay, so we closed our coronavirus series last year, reflecting on how to shape a resilient cultural ecosystem. As we consider the partnerships and collaboratives that have been forged as a result of COVID-19, how can folks continue relationship building both within sectors and across sectors for long-term impacts and to see a different, more equitable funding ecosystem? Well, I, I think that we're in such a better position when we, than we were a year and you know, four months ago. We've learned a lot in this process. Um, there was so much that was done by the seat of our pants, so to speak. And as we more move toward recovery, I think the first really important step is just taking stock of the experience. What has worked, what didn't work, and what are the gaps um, so that we can learn from those lessons and then shift our focus and our priorities in that direction. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done as we talked about, um, in, especially in terms of the um, equity and culturally responsive uh, you know, angle as well. Um, but we've also seen the power of looking outside of the art sector and, and building relationships there. And so finding opportunities to continue to do that is, is important as well. I, I think 
from uh, what we've seen, um, the investment in um, leadership, um, a willingness of funders to continue to listen and support their grantees and give them the flexibility to prepare and respond. The artist relief is a perfect example of this, of how strong we can be together and how much uh, impact we can have. And I think there's a lot to learn from that experience. And being able to not, um, to be able to respond without having to build as we go along. So um, this pandemic illustrated to us that no one is immune from large scale disaster emergencies and that planning, preparation, relationship building and that coordination being done ahead of time has always been a key to a successful um, response and recovery. And, and this is a, a perfect example of it as, a, 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 as well. So it allows us to be more thoughtful and intentional and, and work toward all of our goals, in particular, maintaining equity and inclusion um, in our, our sites from the start. All right, thank you so much, James. Um, well, I really appreciate the opportunity. This was, this was excellent and uh, thanks for joining us. And to our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations. So be sure to tune in to our upcoming webinar, Surviving a Pandemic from Emergency Response to Best Practice, taking place on Wednesday, July 28th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. To keep up with GIA updates, be sure to follow us on Facebook at GI Arts, Twitter at GI Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me Sherilyn Seeley at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. Thanks so much for listening.